You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. It's here and preach with you these numbers of weeks. And as many of you know, I'm here until June. I have the privilege of being here until the week before Father's Day. Um, if you're a guest or a visitor tonight, I know some of you are checking uh, the church out. They're, they'll fix that. It'll just take a second. Um, but some of you are checking the church out a bit. I want you to know you're in a good place. I, I had the privilege last week of meeting with about 12 of the people who form a bit of a leadership team here, or they're part of the core of the church. And as I was there meeting with them, there's just a great group of people who are passionate to grow in their faith and knowledge of Jesus. And they're also just passionate um, to see this church established here in this neighborhood and to see the people that come to this church grow in their faith and knowledge of Christ. And so you're in a good place, a place where people love Jesus and where people have a passion to grow, to become like him. The Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about people in three stages of faith. Sometimes they say people have no faith. They say there's no faith. That's often a group we call the Pharisees, or they're called the Pharisees in the Bible. They were a group of religious leaders of the day. There's two groups often named, Pharisees and Sadducees, two, two different sects of kind of Jewish leadership. Sometimes you hear people are called, or they're told they have little faith. Jesus says that on a couple of occasions about the disciples, that they have little faith. And only on a couple of occasions are people told they have great faith. And both times they're Gentiles, not Jews. Only a couple of times in scripture are people told by Jesus that they have great faith. What is great faith? Great faith is not just believing in God. Great faith is believing God. Great faith isn't just believing in God. Great faith is believing God. And I'll get to that in a few moments. So verse 21 of Matthew 15 says this. Jesus went away from there. He withdrew to the district of Tyre. And cited. So what has just happened? What has just occurred? Jesus had just fed the 5,000. We looked at that last week. I looked at that from the account from John. So we looked at John's account, Gospel of John. The feeding of the 5,000, I said this last week, is one of the only two miracles found in all four Gospels, right? The two miracles found in all four Gospels are the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection. They're the only two found in all four. That makes a big statement about the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus has just said, fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. So we're talking likely 12,000 people are there. He then had uh, he walked on water and then had a conversation with the Pharisees about what is defilement and what makes you unclean in God's sight. And so he's gone on retreat. It says he withdraws to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This account is found both in Matthew and in Mark. And in the market, talks about how he's basically on retreat. That's what he's doing. He's shifted away. He's gone into Gentile territory. Now, you might wonder, what is a Gentile? It's a very easy answer. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. I'm going to assume tonight, there's probably none of us here that are of Jewish heritage, maybe one of you or two of you, but I've spoken in very large forums where most people are just not a Jew. And so the rest of us, the scripture calls us Gentiles. So Jesus has moved from Jewish territory into Gentile territory. And these two towns, Tar and Sidon, they're about 20 miles apart from each other. 
They're about 20 miles apart from each other. And in the Old Testament, Tyre is cursed as the center of Baal worship. So that's where you find Jesus. You find Jesus in this moment, having withdrawn. He's exhausted, having fed the 5,000, more than that, but 5,000 men plus women and children. He wants some respite, and he and the disciples move on. And a Canaanite woman comes, verse 22, from that region. She comes out and she's crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. A woman comes and she's crying out to him, have mercy on me. Now, I want you to know a couple of things. Matthew describes him, her, sorry, as a Canaanite. Mark says she's a Syrophoenician. What does that mean? Well, Canaanite, at, at this point in time in history, there are no Canaanites. They don't exist as a people group. But what Mark or Matthew, sorry, is writing and saying is that she's from the Canaanite heritage. And the Canaanites were, of course, enemies of the Jewish people. The Canaanites and Jewish people were enemies, right? And so they were always at war with each other, always battling each other. And that's her heritage. So here, Matthew, uh, or Mark, sorry, calls her a Syrophoenician. What's, what's a Syrophoenician? Well, if you know your history at all, at one point in time, the, the Babylonians, right, were running the world, right? So the Babylonian Empire was there. After the Babylonians came the Persians. After the Persians came the Greeks. After the Greeks came the Romans. And at this stage in history, in world history, the Romans are running the then world. But the Greeks under Alexander the Great had done so just before the Romans. And so Syria was a province of Rome, Phoenicia was the region of Greece. And so they're known as Syrophoenicians. Syrophoenicians. And that's what she's called. In the Gospel of Mark, we find out that the daughter is little. Matthew doesn't say it, it just says daughter. But in Mark, we find out that she's little. And know what she says, Lord, son of David. Lord, son of David, my daughter is even possessed. She's crying out, have mercy on me. She calls him Lord. She'll do this three times to identify who she is. And she also knows his title, his position. He's the son of David. Very few people in scripture understand who he is. The disciples, it takes them until after the resurrection to understand who he is. Oh, you're the Christ, the Messiah. She, you're the Lord. You're the Lord come down. You're the son of David. You're the one of whom the Davidic promises are coming true in. She knows who he is. Let me just pause there for a moment. I know most of you in the room aren't yet parents, but some of you are. And if your child was sick, what would you do for your child? You would do anything. When uh, we have four kids, when our twins were born, Jill and Ivy, who are now 14, they were born, and I'll talk about this when I talk about Jesus encountering suffering in a few weeks. They were born at one pound and 13 ounces and two pounds and nine ounces. And the night they were born, the doctors looked at me and said, we don't think they'll live. We don't think they'll live. And he said, there's some things I need you to do. And you know, in that moment, what would I do? I would do anything. I would do anything. I remember when we first went in to the neonatal unit, I went in later that day, Amy couldn't go in, she was recovering. And uh, I couldn't even touch them. I wasn't even allowed to, 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 do, to hold them, to touch anything, just look at them through the glass. What would you do for your ill child? You would do anything. That is the mother's cry. Note verse 23. But he said nothing. He did not answer a word. He was silent. His disciples came out. They begged him, send her away. She's crying out after him. 
why, why is Jesus silent? What's happened to our Jesus? Is this the Jesus we understand the gospel? I mean, in a moment, he's going to call her a dog. What's going on here? Follow along and I'll explain. She's silent, or sorry, Jesus is silent. And the disciples are annoyed and they say, send her away. You see, here's what's happening. Just a few days before, Jesus has been in a conversation with the Pharisees, with the disciples there about defilement and about what is clean and unclean. The disciples believe they're in unclean territory and they believe as all Jewish people, right? The disciples are all Jewish, that everyone else is unclean. They were God's chosen people. God had saved Abraham. He called Abraham out. In fact, the Jewish people often refer to their heritage as what? The God. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the Jewish people misunderstood what God was doing. They thought he was just coming for them. But all along from the very beginning, you could see that God's plan was to extend grace beyond the Jewish people. That God was starting with the Jewish people because all of our hearts were hard. All of our hearts were dark. Right? In Ephesians, it says we're all dead in our transgressions and sin. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Dead person can't do a thing. But what did God promise Abraham? That all nations will be blessed through him. All nations. Not just the nation he would create through him. We come to Nineveh. And when we come to Nineveh, it was a Gentile nation that was wicked. God sends a prophet to it, and God chooses to save the entire nation. A revival breaks out in Nineveh when God shows up through the prophet Jonah. We look at Psalm 40, sorry, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 42. We're told that this Messiah that will come, this Christ that will come, will be the light to the Gentiles. And then we turn to uh, Psalm 87, just verses 3 and 4. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab, that was ancient Egypt, and Babylon among them who acknowledged me, Felicia too, Tyre, and along with Cush. And I will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one will be born of her. The Most High himself will establish her. What's, what's going on? What are these verses saying? It's saying that God is going to include in his people Egypt, Babylon. Tyre, where Jesus is right now, Cush. Even in the psalmist, it's being declared that God's plan from the very beginning was always for more than just the Jewish people. But the Jews didn't understand that. The disciples didn't get it. And Jesus is about to demonstrate it to them. And so he's silent. And they're saying, like, send her away. She's crying out after us. We're on retreat. She's outside of the covenant. She's not one of the covenant people. He answered, verse 24. Who is he answering? This is really important. He's answering the disciples. He's not answering her. She's asked a question. They've interjected. Jesus is now replying to them, the disciples. That's really important. You misunderstand the text. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, she kneels before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it at the dogs. Jesus here wants to see if the disciples have learned anything. He's just a few words before spoken to them about defilement and clean and unclean and talked to them about what is clean and unclean to show them that the Gentiles aren't, the Gentiles are clean, they're not unclean. To show them that defilement isn't about what you put in, but about what comes out. And they still don't get it. 
Through the Gospels, you see often Jesus using what's called reversal of expectation. Right? Reversal of expectation. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? A man comes up to Jesus, a lawyer, and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, they, they have this encounter. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? Jesus then tells an encounter about a man, right? What it looks like as he's going down the road, he's beaten another man, comes to help him after two other men pass by him. And at the end of it, Jesus says, who was his neighbor? So the question was, right? Who is my neighbor? And, and Jesus then flips it at the end. And he actually looks at the lawyer and he says, are you a neighbor? He takes what was happening and he reverses the expectation. It happens with Lazarus. We'll get to this when we look at the encounters of Jesus. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus who's dying. He's sick. He's dying. And they all knew that if Jesus showed up, he wouldn't be able to heal him. And Jesus doesn't go. He waits till he's dead. He shows up after he's dead four days. And then he raises him to life again, reversal of expectation. It happens with the rich young ruler. right? The rich young ruler comes to him and says, good teacher. I'll get to this one too in a few weeks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, Jesus isn't saying that because he's not God. Jesus is saying, hey, man, I, I'm not here, and you're not just trying to kind of make me feel all good and mushy inside. right? Like You're, 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 you're not here just trying to earn favor or points with me. If you're going to call me God or call me good, call me good because you know who I am, because you know I'm God. And then Jesus says, well, do you know the commandments? The man lists them. And, says, I've kept them since I was a boy. What's he saying? I've been good. The whole encounter is about goodness. And then what happens? Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack. Go, take all you have, sell it, and come follow me. He offers him the opportunity to become the 13th disciple. Now, does he really want the man to sell everything to be saved? No. You can't do anything to be saved. All you can do is receive the gift of God. He wants the man to be able to admit he's not good and he needs a savior. Does that make sense? It's called reversal of expectation. And so Jesus right now, when he says to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wants to see if they get it. He wants to see if they understand as they've studied the scripture that God's purpose and plan from the very beginning, as he called Abraham, was to be a light and a blessing to the nations. And that though it started with the Jew, right? We find that in Romans 1, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, that the gift of God was always for the Gentile as well. But they just didn't get it. And she comes, the mother, and kneels before him again, Lord, help me. And then he says this, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Why is he doing this? He's testing her faith. Right? We talked about this last week when I looked at, if you, for those of you who are here, the feeding of the 5,000, where we walked all the way through the passage in John 6 to where Jesus says he is the bread of life. Because Jesus says to them at one point in time, right? What? You just want me. You've just followed me. So I'll feed you again. You've just done this, so I'll feed you again. Because at that time, they would spend 85, 80, 85% of their annual, or I'm sorry, their daily income on food. Shelter was cheap. Food was expensive. And they'd spend all their money on food. And so like, Jesus, save us some money. Feed us again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's who I am. 
And he wants to know if these guys understand what's going on here. And so he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's letting, he's testing her faith. Are, are you here because like the people in the Fiends 5000, they just wanted a miracle worker? They just wanted someone to satisfy their need in the moment? Or are you here, are you calling me Lord because you know who I am? Now she said it twice. Well, we can see this whole idea of first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In Matthew 10, Jesus says what? These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles or to any of the town of the Samaritans. Rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. So as Jesus is sending the 12 out, he starts by sending them first to the Jewish people. Just like Romans says, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But if they understood the promises of Scripture, they would understand that the starting point is with the Jews moving to the Gentile. Later on in Matthew 10, verse 18 of the same passage, Jesus says, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Jesus is saying, as you're going out eventually, the witness will grow to the Gentile. In fact, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, you find out in Matthew that the Gospel is going to the Gentile, right from the genealogy. Those of you that don't know what that is, it's the account in the first part of Matthew where Matthew is aligning the heritage of Jesus, his genealogy. In the genealogy, there's a woman named Ruth. Why is she there? Who is Ruth? She is a Moabitess. She's from a foreign land, a foreign tribe who marries in and eventually is the great-grandmother of King David. But she marries in. But she's named because God wants to say through Matthew that this gospel is for all people, for every language, for every custom, for every tribe, for every tongue. What makes the gospel so unique? You find out just in a few chapters in Matthew, the Magi come. They're Gentiles as well. These like, likely they were astronomers and astrologers, probably a mix. Wealthy, they bring gifts. They're given to, you know, Mary and Joseph. The gifts are there, likely given in order to be able to provide the money that Joseph and Mary need to fly, flee to Egypt, because likely Joseph won't be able to work in Egypt. So this is just God's gracious provision. And then in Matthew, you find the Great Commission. Right? Go into how much of the world? All the world. So not only is the shift that the gospel is for the Jews and will go to the Gentiles in all of scriptures right here in the gospel of Matthew. But remember what Jesus said. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall at their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. We live in a day where people love to cancel people and in a day where people are offended by anything. You know, you sneeze the wrong way and somehow someone is offended. But she understands, she gets. She understands her culture. She understands her place. She understands she's not part of the covenant people of God. She's not offended. She's not defensive. Like, why'd you call me a dog? None of that. She just replies appropriately. Lord, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from their master's table. Jesus tests her faith. She answers appropriately. And Jesus says she has great faith. One of the only couple of times that happens in all of scripture. 
He says that she has great faith. She understands she's from an idolatrous country. She understands she's outside of the covenant people. She's probably spent every cent she has in trying to get her daughter healed. She's probably gone to all kinds of people to try to ensure that her daughter could be healed. And now she's heard that Jesus is in the region and she comes to him believing that where no one else could do something, she believes he can. Do you know that's true of your life? Do you know that's true of your life? All of us end up searching all kinds of stuff. Is it my career? Is it a relationship? Is it popularity? Is it finances? And we think that that will satisfy. We think that somehow that will be what we need. And she tried it all and found that it was wanting. And she hears that Jesus is there. And somehow she's understood enough of who he is that she can call him Lord three times. And she knows he's the son of David. And she believes that he can do something where no one else could. And when he tests her faith, she comes out glowing. And she has great faith. She has great faith. This is really important. This is what she knows. Even a crumb from the Lord, the son of David's table, is greater than the bounty of any other banquet. Even a crumb from the Lord, the son of David's table, is greater than the bounty of any other banquet. Do you believe that? Later on today, we're going to celebrate just a crumb. It's a little piece of bread that reminds us that Jesus took our place on a cross and died for our sin, that he died in our stead. You've heard me talk about the fact that we work extensively with the Karen people when I was at James North. They're the people from Burma that were being exterminated by their own government. The United Nations stepped in back in 2007 and 8. About 5,000 were brought to Canada, and I connected with them. I didn't understand at first as I was listening to them, um, and I'd walk into their services, and in their language, I'd hear sweet hour of prayer. I'd hear um, holy, holy, holy. There would be a half-hour message with the Bible that was open, and there would literally be a half-hour of prayer that I had to try so hard not to fall asleep through because it was an afternoon service like this, and I'd often had already preached twice, so this is my third service in the day. I'm like, Lord, I can't fall asleep. Because then when I started to preach at the church and it was translated, they would have these big chairs that churches used to have. And they went and found them somewhere for a church. So we didn't have any. They were meeting in our facility. And I'd sit on one in front of everyone. I'm like, Lord, I can't fall asleep up here. Lord, I can't fall asleep up here. Right? And you're hearing a 30-minute prayer in another language. And you're like, Lord, I'm going to pray in my own language, but I can't do it with my eyes closed because it's third sermon today. I'm exhausted and I'm going to fall asleep like Jesus did in the boat. And it's going to look really bad here for me. It didn't look bad on Jesus, but it would for me. When they came to Canada, their young people, right, are talking to their teachers at school because our, our country is terrible at this, right? I've spoken to levels of government about this a number of times. But you come to our country from another country, and you're a student, and you're a refugee, and you're placed in whatever grade your age is. So all of these young people had only ever gone up to grade four and five. Some of them had made to grade seven in a jungle refugee camp. With no electricity, no running water, no sanitation. How great do you think that education was? And then they get here, and they're 16 years old. They're put in grade 11. They're just, they don't know a word of English. They've done up to somewhere between grade 3 and 7, depending on who they are, in a refugee camp in a jungle. And now they're just stuck in grade 11. So a whole bunch of them checked out. Right? I mean, this God can't be very good. Like, look at our lives. They're such a mess. In the refugee camp, a whole number of them have trusted Christ. And literally their whole group of young people across Canada 
checked out, got involved in drugs, got involved in alcohol, got involved in all kinds of stuff. Tune was one of those young men. One of his best friends at the church had committed suicide. I took that young man's funeral, and Tune checked out of everything. Checked out of it all. Got involved with drugs, got involved with alcohol, you know, girls, the whole nine yards. And they live in small quarters and apartments, often multi-generationally, and families. And so their whole family was in a two-bedroom apartment. And Tune's father finally kicked him out and said, we can't have this anymore. Tune's grandfather had his own apartment, and Tune moved in with his grandfather. And Tune's grandfather continued to witness to his grandson, continued to share the gospel with him. Listen, this is really important. This man in his 80s couldn't read and write his own language, let alone English. He'd never read a book in his entire life. The only portions of scripture he knew because he couldn't read were the portions he could memorize. He'd ask people to read the Bible to him so he could memorize scripture. He couldn't read any of the books you have here. You've got some great books to give to people. Couldn't understand any of them. He couldn't offer any defense for the gospel. All he could do was faithfully witness to his grandson and pray. Grandfather died. And at the funeral, Tune was sitting at the front with the family, head buried in his knees, weeping. And at his grandfather's funeral, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. God saved him. He went home, he took his phone, and he smashed it so he wouldn't have the contacts for any of the drug people anymore. He took all the drugs in the apartment, he dumped them down the toilet and flushed them. Probably not good for our water, but it's fine. Right? Some fish somewhere is getting high right now. I baptized him at his baptism. His dad, who kicked him out of the house, played the guitar while Tune sang a song of God's faithfulness to him. He and I were texting recently. He's passionate because we've now seen about 18 young men and women from the Kren tradition that had all walked away from the Lord, come back to faith and be baptized. And he's passionate to see the rest of them come. He's talking about how the Lord can use him in the lives of the other. And he said something like this in a text recently. He said, I just want them all to know that you can try everything you want and it will be found wanting. But Jesus Christ will fill you. You see what this woman knew? Even a crumb from the Lord, the son of David's table, is greater than the bounty of any other banquet. Lord, I'll just take the crumbs. Because I know your crumbs are better than anything I can get anywhere else, regardless of how good it looks or how great it seems. And that's what Jesus is like. That's who he is. Though we rebel against him, he cloaks his deity with humanity. He comes down and lives among us. He never sins. I mean, imagine how helpless he was when he was born. Mary and Joseph had to change his diapers. The one who called the universe into existence by his might and word had to be fed and changed. He never sins. He lived a completely sinless life. I mean, that had been hard, right, as one of his brothers, right? Could you imagine, like, you know, Mary's like, who did it? And James is like, Jesus did. And she's like, well, now you're in trouble because I know you did it and you've lied because I know Jesus didn't do it. Never does anything wrong. Sinless. Completely holy. At the end of his life, he gives his life up for ours. All of our sin 
our pride, our arrogance, all of it is placed on him. All of it. Every time that we thought that something else looked better than Jesus, that's sin. Every time we thought something else would satisfy, something else would be better. Every time you've looked at pornography, every time you've robbed God with your wealth, every time you've been unwilling to forgive someone, every time you've doubted is all placed on him. And he dies so that we can live. He goes through hell so we don't have to. And three days later, because he never sinned, the father raises him to life again. Is that not good news? We have a great Savior, an amazing God, and we're saved by faith, a faith that he grants us in him. What is great faith? It is humble. It is broken. It is reverent. It is persistent. Jesus says, if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will go. He's not asking you to become great landscapers in Toronto and say to a rock, move here, and a tree be planted there. He's saying, if you're here, and I've called you here, and there's a mountain in the way, I can get you through that mountain to the other side. Is that not good news? There's nothing God will ever call you to ever in your life that he will not see you through. There's no mountain that's too big for God to move. And if you're here and God has called you here, he will see you through it. He can move that mountain. If you're here and he's calling you to forgive someone, and you're like, how do I forgive them? It can be hard to forgive. I've told you this, but my wife grew up in a home where her dad was an alcoholic. He abused her physically and sexually growing up. He got full possession because he made a lot of money and lost it all to his alcoholism. And when God saved her, she learned to forgive her dad. If you're here, you're here, and God's call on your life is here, he can move that mountain. He can move that mountain, whatever it is. He can move that mountain to provide a pastor for Liberty Grace. You're here. God wants you to be here. Do you know God can do that? He's that great. I have walked this neighborhood many times over the last few weeks. I walked it with Daryl a number of times. and He can provide you with a place. I mean, this is a great place. But he can provide you with a more permanent place. He can provide you with people that will stay and live in this neighborhood and raise their kids here. I started to look around the neighborhood last week when I was leaving and just kind of drive around. I got out and walked a little bit before I went home. And, um, and as I was doing so, just kind of looking at different spots, um, I thought, okay, there are some homes that aren't that far away for people that want to live in homes. There are condos that are close. This is possible. God can raise up a people who, who will stay here and live here. I had the opposite thing in my church. We were in a poor community. I mean, I've told you, when my twins were born, five young men were shot in my neighborhood within six weeks, and I could walk within a minute of where they were all shot. And we called our neighborhood, we called our church community to move in. We said, this is where God wants you to be. This is what God wants you. God can do that. If you're here and what God's asking you to do is here, providing a pastor, moving into this neighborhood, forgiving someone that you just can't stand. God can move that mountain. Is that not good news? Because it's not about the quality of your faith. 
Your faith needs to be broken and humble, reverent and persistent. It's about the object of your faith, and that object is Jesus Christ. And he can do anything. And he can move any mountain because of who he is. When um, our twins were young, we lived downtown, so our house is like 22 square feet wide. Our property is like 28 feet. And so we have two stories in an attic, so three stories above ground, one story below ground, and um, a basement. That's what they call them, just so you know. Um, I, I didn't forget the name. Um, and when, when, when our twins were young, and sometimes I'd go from the basement all the way up to the attic, which is where my, my wife and my room is, um, and we'd take them up there, uh, they would be clinging to me as I'm walking up and down the stairs, and they'd want to go at the same time. So I'd be holding on to them, and their little tiny hands would be gripping my body to make sure I wouldn't drop them. But the truth is it didn't matter how well they held on to me. It mattered how well I held on to them. And sometimes we think it's about our feeble hand reaching out to this great big God and holding on to his hand. It's about God's abiding, strong hand having reached down and gripped your heart and holding on to you. And while you're reaching out to him in all of your weakness, he reaches out to you in all of his strength with a love that will never let you go. Because he is a great God in whom you can put your faith. The Pharisees were told that they had no faith. The disciples at times were told that they had little faith. Right? Peter, they see Jesus walking on the water. They think it's a ghost at first. They realize it's Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat to join Jesus. He's walking on water. Now, come on. Let's just submit for one minute. That would have been awesome. Right? The wind picks up, a wave comes, Peter's faith diminishes, he sinks, Jesus grabs him. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, this is Matthew 14, catches him and says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? He says the disciples have little faith. That was Peter who got out of the boat. None of the other disciples got out of the boat. So of the Pharisees, no faith. Of the disciples, many times, little faith. Of a Canaanite woman whose daughter is oppressed by demons. A Syrophoenician who's outside of the covenant. Whose faith he even tests. He says, you have great faith. Can I ask you, brothers and sisters, tonight, where's your faith level? No faith? Little faith? Or great faith? Let me promise you this, and I'll be done with these two sentences. The first is this. Any God who would ever cloak his deity with humanity and come down and die for our sin, that the great physician would bleed, that the author of life would die for us, any God who would do that, whatever he's calling you to, whatever he's asking you to do, he's not out to ruin your life. He's not out to ruin your life. He's only out to give you life in abundance. How do you know that's true? He died to grant you life. And oh, may this just be impressed on our hearts tonight that even a crumb from his table is greater than the bounty of any banquet. Would you pray with me? We are so thankful, God, for your goodness and grace in our lives. 
Jesus, I pray for all of us tonight. Some of us are here and we're saying, I have no faith. God, for those that are feeling that way tonight, if they know you, may you remind them that they have faith because they've trusted you. If they don't know you and they're sitting here tonight, may your spirit work on their life so powerfully tonight that you would save them and grant them faith. God, some of us are here tonight and we confess that there's many times in our lives that we have little faith. And so we ask you to increase our faith. May we be reminded that it's to be humble and reverent because it's not about the quality of our faith, but you, the object of our faith. And God, for each of us here, may you grant us great faith to do the things you're calling us to do, to be the people you want us to be, so that powerfully, oh God, our lives would be changed into your image and likeness, and lives around us would be changed because of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.